Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we close out our mini-series on The Spirit is Life. We've got to make way for a number of special services coming up from Mother's Day to Change the World Sunday, Memorial Day, and Confirmation. Uh, Last week we talked about how the Spirit brings life to us here at Grace. We have some big changes that are taking place in the church and in the individual lives of our members. In each change, we learn to trust God more and more. The Spirit points us not to our flesh, depending on our own resources, but to Jesus, to an eternal God that can heal us mind, body, and soul. Now, that makes sense for us here in the church. Hardly any Christian would quibble with this basic tenet of the church, but a much deeper problem lurks just beneath the surface. What about everybody else? How does the Spirit bring life for everyone else? What happens if you don't trust God? What happens if you live your whole life dependent on your own resources, never looking to God? Is God's love and grace available to you, or are you simply doomed? To answer this, we are going to return to the letter to the Romans. Remember, the Apostle Paul wrote this book to a group of people who had been treated terribly by the emperor. They were treated as second-class citizens and thrown out of the city. Paul is writing with racial reconciliation and cultural sensitivity in mind. He is sharing how unexpected it would be if God were to save some and not others. Let's hear Romans 11, verses 17 through 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. Uh, But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel— until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish the ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient, in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And from Psalm 139, 7 through 10, Where can I go from your spirit? Oh, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven and you are there, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Open our hearts to you this day. We may not all agree on every point of theology or facet of belief, but we all want your Holy Spirit. Teach us how to find life and healing through your Spirit this day. Help us to be a blessing to our neighbors as you call us to be. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 2009, an older woman walked onto the stage for a popular talent show. You can tell right away that the audience is judging this woman. She's dressed in a frilly thing, and her hair looks decidedly unkempt. One person commented that she looked like a cross between the Queen of England and a guest on the Titanic. The audience and the judges had already made up their minds, based on her looks alone, that she was a fool. They laughed at her when she said her aspiration was to be a famous singer. Then she began to sing. Her first words were, I dreamed a dream. And she sounded so good, so incredible, the audience immediately began screaming and cheering for her. This dowdy woman was Susan Boyle. In just a few short months, she would produce and sell a record titled, I Dreamed a Dream, that would become the UK's best-selling album of all time. Her next album, the following year, would be the third time ever that an act would top the charts in both the United Kingdom, and the United States. People judged Susan Boyle on that talent show stage too quickly. But perhaps most interesting of all was not her ability to show people how wrong they were in that moment. Perhaps the most interesting thing was the change that happened to one particular judge that day. Simon Cowell was well known as the meanest contestant judge around. He happily criticized and verbally destroyed contestants for years. It was practically his trademark. But 10 years after Susan Boyle's performance, she returned to the show again. She sang that iconic song once again and dazzled the audience all over again. And Simon Cowell said after it that he was reminded on that day, a decade earlier, how disgusting he had acted. If you follow talent show programming, maybe you've noticed this shift. Today, Simon isn't so cocky and arrogant. Instead, he is finding ways to inspire people to chase their dreams and not give up. It's a remarkable shift for someone known as the king of savage put-downs. He's not perfect, but he is on the way to being a better judge. And that ought to serve as a reminder to us in how we judge, too. It can be so easy to find ourselves in the middle of that story, like that audience who sees Susan Boyle for the first time, thinking, we know better. We know how this is going to go. But do we? 
do we really know? There's a number of studies out there about how in the blink of an eye we make an evaluation of a person. We have very little information, just the look on someone's face, and we determine whether we like them, whether we trust them, and if we think they are smart. All of this is something called physiognomy. We assign psychological characteristics to facial features or body structure. When you boil it down, what we are actually doing is discriminating. It's prejudice. We can't know who someone is and what they are thinking and feeling until they actually tell us. And yet we can act as though we know every detail of who someone is just based on how they look. That's ridiculous. I work with another pastor in the United Methodist Church, and recently a person was telling a story about how they were the only person of color in the room. And my immediate thought was, you're a person of color? I didn't know that. I've since learned that she is Puerto Rican. She has no accent. Her skin is light. Her hair is curly. But I've never thought twice about any of that. I simply had no idea about her culture, her history, and her daily experiences. And those things are very important. If I don't ask and listen closely, I do not and cannot know what a person thinks and feels. In the letter to the Romans, though, the Apostle Paul takes it one step further. It's not just that we don't know what someone thinks and feels just by looking at them. Paul is telling us we don't know a much bigger and more fundamental thing either. For a thousand years of Jewish history, Israel was the chosen nation. Father Abraham, a wandering Aramean, had heard from God and put his trust in the Lord. He passed on this legacy to future generations, and the Israelites were the people who knew and followed the one true God. And yet with Jesus, there is this new thing happening. The great revelation of Jesus is not just about his death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection was simply the sign and verification of something else. It verified that the testimony of Jesus was indeed true. It confirmed that what he said was the will of God. So what was Jesus' message? What did he want everyone to understand about God? The key was that God is love, that God is not at war with humanity trying to condemn it. God sent Jesus to save the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That's the point. Paul is saying the root The tree that we are all connected to is God, as revealed to the Jewish people thousands of years ago. If a branch is cut off, if a Jewish person loses their way and disconnects themselves from God, then they won't grow. They won't flourish as God intends them to. But God doesn't desire for people to be cut off from the tree. God wants everyone connected in. Paul calls it the kindness and severity of God. Disconnection from God is severe for those who fall off, but it's kindness for everyone who chooses to be grafted in to God's tree. The only requirement for people all over the world is to continue in his kindness. Say yes, and you are in. The analogy he makes of grafted trees might be a foreign idea for many of us. So listen to this uh, to get an idea of what it means to be grafted in. So this plant is grown from seed. And there's going to be a lot of variation between each tree. So if you had 100 trees that were all grown from seed, 
the fruit that each tree produces is going to be slightly different. So they don't necessarily grow true to type. Now if you look at these two trees, and this one is a grafted tree, this is a duffy, you can see that the foliage is slightly different. It's grafted down here. And this is basically a miniature mature tree. The fruit that are produced on this grafted variety are going to be true to type, so they're going to be exactly the same as the parent tree. You're going to know what you're going to get, and it's going to fruit much quicker than this seedling tree. All right, so grafts are true to type and bear fruit much quicker. When you think about being a follower of Jesus, what do you want? Do you want to be kind of like Jesus? Maybe a little bit different? Maybe getting some things right and some things wrong? Or do you want to be true to type, exactly like Jesus? Followers of Jesus aim to be just like Jesus in every way. For us here today, we can fall into a trap that caught these early Christians. We can be quick to say, I'm special, I'm loved, I'm chosen by God. Now that's true, and we praise God for that. But when we accept that we are loved by God and aim to have lives that are just like Jesus, we might say everyone around me has to be just like me, right? We exclude others because we have it right. We are the true followers of Jesus. So if you don't act like me, then you are wrong. This is actually the exact opposite of what Jesus says. We don't tell people to be like us, we only point them to Jesus. End of story. God's way is not for us and not for them. We, it is for us, it's for them, and it's for everyone. God's path is always an open invitation, one that stems from God's kindness. Throughout the letter to the Romans, Paul is wrestling with God's acceptance of others, uh, of their differences. Too often we look at people who don't look like us or behave like us and we say, you aren't Christians, you aren't living like Jesus, when the reality is we have no idea what is happening in another person's life. We have no idea where they are in their journey with God. A few years ago, someone moved into a new neighborhood. They had the moving truck in their driveway, so they had to park somewhere else. And because the street was so narrow, Anywhere they parked would block the street. So they saw a little extra of pavement with a parking spot just up the street. They parked there, came back and unloaded the trucks late into the night, and then had to come back and finish the job the next day. They wake up, and on their car parked up the street is a sign taped to the window that says in bold Sharpie, Do not park here. It's not a very nice way to welcome a new neighbor, is it? After they move their car... The mean neighbor put up some saw horses to block off the parking spot so no one would be able to park there. So the new neighbor, they put a post on the internet with the neighbor's address and said there were some free saw horses out front. By the next day, they were gone and the mean neighbor was so angry about it. But that's not the right way to respond, is it? Any number of situations could cause someone to respond in a way that seems mean. Uh, it may be urgency or cultural differences. We hold off on judging because that's God's business, not ours. Jesus says something similar in Mark 9. When the disciples notice someone who is using Jesus' name, the disciples rebuke the person saying, Hey, you're not one of us. But Jesus says, No, that's not right. 
Whoever is not against us is for us. God's kingdom doesn't reject people. It welcomes them in. It's inclusive. It's expansive. It's more open than we could possibly realize. And when someone does something truly evil, we don't respond with evil, with more evil. We return evil with good. That's the very next chapter in Romans. In our humanists, we think we should give as good as we get and fight fire with fire. If somebody is bad to me, I'll get back at them. I'll show them. No, that's not the good news. The good news is that Jesus has overcome evil, and we are to be true to type, just like Jesus. We will bring healing and hope to our communities when we do just like Jesus did and overcome evil with good. Can you picture a world where Christians are so in tune with the Holy Spirit that instead of getting back at people, instead of trying to reject them or force them to behave differently, we bless them, we love them, we welcome them in and offer every good thing we can think of? We don't win the war of faith by dictating to people what they can and cannot do. We win with love, with never-ending Christ-reflecting love. It's a little like the story of Robert. Uh, Robert lived in Michigan, was uh, a part of a string of robberies. When he faced the judge in court, he thought his life was over. He ended up with a six-year jail sentence. Two decades later, he was back in front of the same judge, but this time, the situation was very different. This time, Robert wasn't a criminal before the judge. This time, he was being sworn in as a new attorney. After prison, he had gone to college, then law school, hoping to give back to the community he had once stolen from. When he was in the courtroom to be sworn in, the judge commended him for turning his life around. Everyone cheered and applauded as the turnaround was completed. A prisoner who stole became a lawyer who blesses people. For every challenge that faces us, we could be a criminal who steals or a lawyer that blesses. Jesus invites us to give and to give freely as we reserve our judgment and seek a better way for others and with others. It's how we find life in the Spirit because healing is for the whole community and it comes through the blessing of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.